For the first time in nearly 50 years, NASA is launching astronauts back to the moon, and this time with a groundbreaking crew on board, including the first woman and first African-American ever assigned to a lunar mission. Tonight, as the crew prepares for liftoff, we'll meet the mission commander leading them to the moon and beyond, as this Metrofocus Summer of Space special starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metrofocus. I'm Jack Ford. For the first time in over 50 years, NASA is on the verge of sending astronauts back to the moon. When the Artemis II crew launches into space, possibly as early as late next year, four astronauts will travel around the moon paving the way for future lunar landings and even missions to Mars. On board will be the first woman and the first person of color to take part in a NASA moon mission. Christina Cook, who holds the world record for the longest space flight by a woman, and Victor Glover, an African-American naval aviator, will also be joined by crew commander Reed Weissman and Canada's Jeremy Hansen. Let's meet them. When I was young, I had a poster of the Earthrise picture, the famous picture that was taken on Apollo 8. And the fact that it was a human behind the lens that made that picture so profound and changed how we all thought of our own home was so amazing to me. The moon is not just a symbol of thinking about our place in the universe. It's not just a symbol of exploration. It's actually a beacon for science. It's a beacon for understanding where we came from. You know, pushing ourselves to explore is just core to who we are. It's a part of being a human. That's our nature. We go out there and we explore to learn about where we are, why we are, understanding the big questions about our place in the universe. The exploration we're doing is the first few steps on the path of getting humans to Mars. The Artemis campaign of missions have set such an ambitious goal for humanity that it's inspiring contributions from around the globe. Not just one nation is inspired and moved by this, but nations from around the globe are coming together. When I look at the Artemis II crew with Victor, Christina, and Jeremy, they want to go do this mission. They are keenly driven. They are humble to a fault. It is so cool to be around them. Artemis II is a huge mission, but I hope we will look back and realize that this was one tiny step in humans on Mars and a sustained presence on our moon. As part of our Summer of Space series launching tonight, we're meeting some of these next generation space explorers and the astronauts who paved the way for them one small step at a time. Joining us now is Reed Weissman, the mission commander of Artemis II, the first moon crew in 50 years. Thanks for letting me be a part of this. And, and I, I must say to start this off, and I mentioned this when you and I were talking off camera, that's the coolest backdrop I think I've ever been involved with. I've done a lot of interviews over 35 years. I've been White House, I've been red carpets at the award shows. That 
wins the award as the coolest backdrop. So thanks for sharing that with us. Certainly appreciate it. If you got to live and work on the International Space Station for a half year like I did, you'd have uh, an inbox filled with 300,000 of these amazing pictures of our planet Earth. I suspect you will. Hey, uh, let me let me talk. Uh, let's, let's start with the mission. All right. And some of your thoughts and observations. Uh, Artemis II. Artemis, for those who are not that familiar with Greek mythology, Artemis, the, 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 the twin sister of Apollo, among other things, the goddess of the moon. So a perfectly appropriate name for this mission. But my question to you is this. I've heard you talk about this being the Artemis generation. What do you mean by that? Uh, we've been to the moon. Uh you know, the generation before us went in the late 1960s and early 70s. We know we can do that, um, but we we haven't done it in this generation. And you know, I was not alive when uh, Gene Cernan and Jack Schmidt left the lunar surface in 1972 as the two last humans on the moon. Um, and so it, it's time for us to go back. It's time for humans to go out and do great, bold, daring things. And when we do that, we will inspire, we will motivate. And that is what we want to do with the Artemis generation. We want to see humans on Mars and getting out to the lunar environment is our first step on that journey. Yeah. And for those of us who were alive for Apollo 11 um, and then the, the last mission in 1972, and, and so many have asked, when are we going back? And to, to know that the answer is now we're going back, I think is, is, is certainly reassuring for a lot of reasons. And we'll get to some of those in a minute, but let's focus on the mission itself, if we can. Give us a sense of what the goals are going to be for Artemis II. Uh, the goal for Artemis II, maybe I would say it's cliche, but is to see humans on Mars. Uh, additionally, coming back and getting to high five our crewmates who will be on Artemis three, four, and five as we go to work on the surface of the moon and in the lunar environment, getting this vehicle ready to hand off to them so they don't have to worry about, hey, can the Orion spacecraft support four humans for two weeks in the lunar environment? Uh, how are all the manual systems? Can we manually fly? Can we manually reestablish comm? Can we use celestial navigation to manually find our location? Uh, those are the questions that we'll be answering on Artemis II so that our, our peers on Artemis III and beyond don't have to worry about the vehicle. They can focus on their mission, which will be landing and working on the surface of the moon. Give us a sense. I'd seen that the estimate is about 10 days of flight around the moon. Give us a sense of the type of projects, the things that you will actually be doing during that span of time. Uh, I love our mission profile. It is about a little over nine days. So we will launch out of the Kennedy Space Center. And in our first 90 minutes, we'll do one lap around the Earth checking out just the really fundamental basic systems on the spacecraft. If that all looks good, we have uh, one larger burn that will send us out to 38,000 miles uh, orbit around the Earth. And that will give us 24 hours in the Earth environment to check out all of our life support systems on the Orion spacecraft. And if everything looks good there, then we do one more burn on the European service module built by Airbus that will send us out 250,000 miles uh, around the moon and then a free return back to earth. And during that transit out to the moon and back, that's when we'll really be focused on looking at Artemis three and beyond. What would the crew be doing to get the vehicle ready uh, for the lander to land? We're gonna look at uh, space habitation, uh, radiation sheltering, uh, and then we're gonna be doing every possible manual maneuver with that vehicle that we could do. That is what we will be doing. So Artemis two is really fundamentally just about for humans living and working on Orion and doing everything we can to buy down risk for our crewmates who'll be on Artemis 3 and beyond. We've talked 
in the beginning about the, the more than 50 years that have passed. And I'm curious about the the, the quality of, of the equipment, the, the launching rocket, the capsule that you'll be in, comparing it to what we all saw. Because those of us who watched this thought that it was difficult to even conceive of the fact that we were able to do this. And I'm curious about how, what, what this generation, you talked about the Artemis generation, but what, what this generation brings in terms of the technology that we didn't have back then. You know, if you if you just watch any rocket, uh, whether it's 1961 or whether it's last week at Kennedy Space Center with SpaceX launching the Axiom 2 crew on a fully private mission to the International Space Station, uh, the rocket looks about the same, right? It's a large cylinder. It's filled with some sort of liquid oxygen and propellant. Uh, it goes through a rocket engine and it sends you into space. It takes about nine minutes to get to low Earth orbit. Those fundamental characteristics of physics are never going to change. But what, what is changing is our manufacturing capabilities, uh, all of the electronics, the computer systems, the way we communicate, our reliability of our systems. So where we used to just put layers of redundancy, now we really know how these systems work and we can start to cut some of that out. We can put other capabilities in. So when you're looking at Artemis II, when we roll to the pad in about 18 months, uh, you're going to see a lot of space shuttle heritage parts that we know work. We know the core stage works. We know our boosters work. Uh, you'll see an Orion capsule that looks a lot in shape like the Apollo capsule because we know that design works. But when you peel back the layers of that onion and you look at what's going on inside, we really have a very modern vehicle that is ready to go explore deep space. I saw a statistic, I don't know if this is accurate or not, or maybe apocryphal, but I saw something that said that if you take your present day iPhone, and compare it to the computing power of the Apollo vehicles that basically your iPhone has, I think it said thousands of times more capacity than the, than the Apollo spacecraft. Does that sound right to you? Uh, I don't know the, the number of thousands of times, but I, I, everybody always says that there's more technology in your iPhone than we had in the entire Apollo program. And all that makes me want to do even more is be an all of what we did in Apollo, yeah. how we did it, how we got there. But I also look at what has changed from Apollo to now. A lot of that happened because we went and landed on the moon. When, when people in the 1960s and 70s, when you were 14 years old and you watched Neil Armstrong take the first steps on the moon, you were instantly drawn to STEM. You were pulled into that world, whether you wanted to be or not. And I, I've really, lately I've been thinking a lot about humans going out and doing daring things, going and actually doing things that is advancing humanity, whether you're a new surgeon uh, doing a new operation that's curing cancer or, you know, protecting people's DNA, like all of that, just going out and doing things is so critical to advancing our civilization. And we go back to President Kennedy's words when he talked about we're going to go to the moon because it's hard. And, and, and because we will we will learn from it. And, and that underscores what you just said about, you know, what we took away from from that 50 years ago and where we've gone since then. Let me let me ask you about your own background, if I could. So uh, you graduated of RPI, one of the great science engineering schools in the world, not just in this country, ROTC, become a naval aviator, a combat fighter pilot, a test pilot. And now this my question to you is. When did this, when do you remember this dream of becoming an astronaut for you emerging in your life? Uh, wow, great question. Uh, when I was a little kid, I wanted to drive trains. That is what I wanted to do. And then that kind of uh, changed into flying airplanes. 
I've always been fascinated with humans operating machinery that other humans have created. I just, I think it's amazing to me. Uh, but for sure, formative in my young life was the Challenger disaster. I was in elementary school. We were all gathered in the cafeteria to watch Krista McAuliffe, a school teacher, launch into space. And we knew something went tragically wrong. Um, but I also knew that that crew, they were heroes and they would figure out a way to survive that. And they didn't. And when I watched our nation mourn, I think that, I know it just sounds so backwards, but that really etched in me this desire to explore, this desire to go do great things. Uh, I think it was truly born from that. You yourself spent 165 days uh, on the International Space Station with a number of other people, including a number of, of Russian cosmonauts. What do you think is the message that, that we can send to the world at this time of, of such turmoil, military turmoil, political turmoil back here on Earth. What's the message that you think the world should get about this cooperation that we've seen with all of you in the space station and now moving forward with the Artemis Accords? My, there's a thousand ways I want to answer this question, uh, but I will just say that there are political differences around our planet, and there are certainly things going on that, that I do not agree with that I don't like. Um, but what I have found time and time again in my life is that when you get below the political layer and you find people that have a common objective, a common goal, and you work together, that we are way more alike than we are apart. So uh, I flew with one of my best friends is Max Sarayev, a uh, Russian cosmonaut. And I met him in training and we flew to the International Space Station together. And I still talk to him to this day. He's just a great human being. Um, as we were walking up for our exams in Russia before we launched, I launched on a Russian vehicle in 2014. Uh, I stopped with my crew outside of the exam building because they were flying a flag for every member of the prime crew and the backup crew. And I saw there the Russian flag, the American flag, the German flag, and the Japanese flag. And just standing there and thinking 50 years ago, we were all at war with each other. And now we are all walking into this examination room to fly to space, to do research on the International Space Station together. That is the message that I want people to take away. An important message for all of us. Commander Reed Wiseman, the commander of the Artemis II mission. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. I said before, we're honored to be able to share our, in our conversation with you. And we certainly want to wish you and the entire crew and everybody working on the project, good luck and Godspeed. You take care. On behalf of uh, my crewmates, Victor, Christina, and Jeremy, thank you for giving us this opportunity. Our pleasure. You be well. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. On July 20th, 1969, Apollo 11 became the first space flight to land humans on the moon. Astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin made history during the 20 and a half hours they spent on the lunar surface. At the age of 86, Buzz Aldrin continues to explore, inspire, and advocate for space travel. In his new book, No Dream is Too High, Life Lessons from a Man Who Walked on the Moon, Aldrin reflects on the journey that led to his role in the historic moon landing and shares the lessons he learned getting there. And joining me now here at the Space Shuttle Pavilion on the deck of the Intrepid Museum is Buzz Aldrin. Buzz, it's an honor to have you here with us. It oh, really is. Well, it brings back memories. <laughs> Uh, well, not this, being a Navy guy, I didn't <laughs> land on carrier. Definitely not a Navy guy. Read the book and you'll discover <laughs> that that's true. Now, now, but this is a very interesting book. 
in that it's both autobiographical and inspirational. You tell a lot of fascinating stories about your lives, some that surprise me, and in the process you share lessons that could help all of us make the best out of our lives. Why did you decide to write the book and why in this way? Uh, maybe it's the same reason that uh, I, I played uh, a cameo with John Travolta in The Boy in the Plastic Bubble. That was one of the first uh, public appearance sort of things. It, it sort of keeps me uh, in front of the public as a uh, versatile person, mm -hmm. not just a state old uh, MIT bookworm or a Dr. Rendezvous, <laughs> which was your nickname. Exactly complimentary. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about you and, and Neil Armstrong. I mean, you guys couldn't have been more different, but the way you write about him in the book mm -hmm. is as a brother would write about another brother. Well, I first met him, uh, I was visiting Ed White, because Ed had a house <clears throat> next to uh, Neil's. And I go over to see Ed, and uh, here's this guy roller skating around. <laughs> Who's that? Oh, that's Neil Armstrong. Well, <laughs> he was unusual. Mm -hmm. uh, not that easy to get to know, according to uh, other test pilots that, that uh, I talked to. But when we were put together as the backup crew for Apollo 8, we worked very closely together. Apollo 8 was given the mission with Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, well, Jim was with us for a while with Neil and I, uh, but Neil and I work quite close together. It's funny because a lot of people make, and you yourself talk about it in the book, about who was the first one to step on the moon and who was the second one. For a period of time, you didn't like being referred to as the second guy on the moon. Uh, always. The junior person had been the one that went outside, as I was on uh, Gemini 12. Yeah. So there was the people that thought that's the way it should start with uh, the outside activities yeah. that were relatively complex in a short period right. of time. Uh, but that's not the symbolic. But you say you came to accept that. You came to accept that. How did you come to accept the fact that you were the well, second it, um, you, you don't hear yourself wince every time. <laughs> but I, I had a very bright, distant cousin, and he was paralyzed. But he would advise governors and others in California. And I would share with him, and he said, Buzz, you can't change history. Just accept things. And, and I think acceptance, uh, instead of mm -hmm. objecting to the lousy deal I got. Mm -hmm. You know, why me? Yeah. Uh, you can't change things. It's almost 50 years since you mm -hmm. set foot on the moon. I can't believe that you didn't think that by now we would be much farther ahead. There was in 1969 a space task group that looked at the future the vice president was in charge of this. And there was a, uh, uh, a strong intensity of space travel, a medium and, and a not so strong. Even the not so strong reached Mars before the year 2000. Really? 
Yeah. Wow. Uh, so what happened? We didn't know that much about but going there, what, but there was yeah. the spirit, see? The spirit Why then. did the spirit leave us? Public apathy. I gotta say that. There were other things. So final question, final question. What do you hope will be your greatest legacy? Uh, a space futurist, or a futurist in space, a statesman for space. I'm a global statesman for space. Uh, not just the US. We don't want to compete with China especially. Not just cooperate, we want to bring together to help the nations. Well, Buzz, thank you so much. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you, well, sir. Thank you. Thank you. 50 years ago, the Apollo 11 moon landing was broadcast to a worldwide live television audience of more than half a billion people, the largest number of viewers for any program or event at the time. Over the decades, the story of Apollo 11 and its astronauts has become the stuff of legend. But now, for the first time, a new documentary uses recently declassified audio to take viewers inside the mission to the moon. Eight Days to the Moon and Back recounts the day-by-day -day experience of the Apollo crew, mainly through conversations the three men had with each other and with mission control. The film seamlessly blends historical news footage, dramatic recreations, and CGI special effects to give us an intimate sense of what it may have felt like to be on that historic journey. Here's a look. In 1969, humanity held its breath. Liftoff. We have a liftoff on Apollo 11. Relive what the astronauts experienced in this extraordinary recreation using the actual audio recordings. Program alarm. Command override off. The mission comes to life like never before. Houston, the Eagle has landed. And joining us now is the executive producer of Eight Days to the Moon and Back, Andrew Cohen. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolute pleasure to be with you. So, you know, Andrew, as I said, the film recounts the day-by-day -day experience of our first moon landing mission, largely through the conversations that the three astronauts had with each other and with mission control. These are fascinating conversations, but almost no one had heard them before because they were classified. Why were they classified? Well, it, they weren't actually classified. I think the interesting thing is that they were, they were released a few years ago, but these recordings were made for engineering purposes. They weren't really made for broadcast or transmission. They were part of the, the engineering program around Apollo 11. And what's interesting is there were thousands and thousands of hours released and really, really difficult to make your way through. And we stumbled across them. But what was interesting, we stumbled across them at a time where Apollo enthusiasts had sort of put them into some kind of order so you could start to find your way through them. And we realized that this was just a treasure trove of material that really got you closer to Apollo 11 than I think anyone has ever been before. Oh, that's absolutely the case. Now, you also use reenactments. That is, uh, three actors play uh, the three astronauts as they go up uh, to the moon. Um, I think it works perfect in this film, but you, as you know, there are some film critics, filmmakers that kind of frown upon uh, dramatizations and documentaries. Uh, did you ever hesitate about using them? I think we hesitated from the very beginning. I mean, the interesting thing for us was that we, we stumbled across this extraordinary treasure trove of, of audio. 
And we knew that within that were these interactions between the astronauts, a real sense of them as human beings and what it meant to go on that, probably the greatest voyage that any human has ever been on. But it got you close to that. But what do you do with 50-year-old, pretty sort of, um, sort of difficult to understand audio recordings to turn that into something that is sort of a documentary, a film for the 21st century. And so it was quite a slow process for us to realize that actually it was, it was using the authenticity of the audio, but using 21st century filmmaking techniques, and particularly the lip syncing technique was a, a kind of really interesting innovation for this, that enabled you to know that everything you hear in this film are the actual words spoken by those astronauts across those eight days. But what you're seeing enables you to just get that, that little bit closer. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, as you said earlier, we've never seen a more intimate look at these three men interacting with each other and with mission control. And we really do get a feel, uh, uh, the feeling that they are made of, uh, of, I mean, these are brilliant and courageous men. Um, did you discover anything about them that you didn't know before that surprised you? Um, I think what the film delivers is that we all just discover something about those three men and the characters that they were, that you, no matter how many times you've seen them interviewed or seen you know, documentaries made about them, you've never actually experienced how they reacted in the moment. You know, there's moments of, of high tension. There's the, the, the famous moments of, of whether it's the actual landing, um, whether it's the conversation with President Nixon. So, so you see all of the moments that maybe you've seen before, um, but, but in this new intimate, intimate way. But it's also the smaller interactions that I find extraordinary. It's the banter between the three men. It's the fact that Armstrong tells off Aldrin for using unscientific, unfitting language uh, for, a, for such a sort of historic moment. Um, and it's the, it's the emotional moments. It's the last meal that they have together. Um, that that you, you suddenly see that these are heroes, but they're heroes who are also human. And even though they're incredibly controlled, um, they, they also just show glimpses of, of their humanity through those eight days. All right, Andrew, I'm telling you, it was a wonderful film. It was a real treat to watch. I hope a lot of people see it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Eight Days to the Moon and Back premieres July 17th on PBS. You can check your local listings and pbs.org for additional viewing opportunities. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.